Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. Susan and Kevin, you know, one of the challenges I think we have as a society is we're conflicted about the roles that animals play in our lives. Are they companions? Are they competitors? Are they food? And the answer is they're all three. So now let's shift gears to, we really didn't, we, did, we didn't really cover that. That's, that's, a, that's a horrible transition. Okay, never mind. Stop. We'll, we'll, we'll do another take. I'm Charlie Arnott with Look East and the Center for Food Integrity, dedicating my career to keeping food trustworthy. I'm Susan Schwally, president of the Food and Beverage Practice at the MPD Group. I'm fascinated by why people eat and drink what they do. And I'm Kevin Ryan, your resident food nerd and founder of Malachite Strategy and Research. And I've developed innovation and strategy for dozens of CPG brands from Green Giant to Haagen-Dazs. And we are the Three Squares, dishing on the food industry. Thanks again to General Mills for their support of this podcast. We're uncovering the interesting stories in food and talking to today's movers and shakers. Susan, Kevin, I am so excited that for this episode of Three Squares, we have a legitimate international star in Temple Grandin joining us. Not only is she incredibly well-known across the food system and the food industry for all of her tremendous work on animal handling, but she's also one of the world's premier advocates on autism. And April is Autism Month, so it's a great time to feature her on Three Squares. And of course, there was a movie about her amazing life and Claire Danes, Blade Temple. If you haven't seen it, I would encourage you to go online and find it. It's a great movie, very inspiring. Great movie and great casting. Great casting, great casting. So uh, yeah. let's chew on this, if we can, for just a moment. If there was going to be a, a, a biopic on you, who would you want to play you in the movie? Mm. When I was younger and my hair was a little different and like hers, someone once said Isabella Rossellini. Aha. Uh-huh. Now, I have a little bit of a... Rosalini uh, knows. Aha, got it. Well, you know what? I was struggling to think about who it would be, but I'm trying to think. You can't it. say Isabella Rosalini. Oh, it was Isabella Rosalini. That's it's who taken. it was it's taken. taken. You can't say Claire Danes okay. either. Yeah. Well, I, I've only had someone say that I look like somebody once, and someone said I look like Pierce Bronson. And I don't know. Ooh. It's like an old, oh. I think it's an older comparison. I don't know. Very cool. Well, I, I, I'd have to say, I think I would pick, pick Ryan Reynolds to play me. Okay. But, <laughs> has but that he, is that also okay, have you also Charlie. been confused for Ryan Reynolds? Well, no, no, no. But the only caveat is he'd he'd have to work out a little bit and yeah, kind of, of and, and and you know yeah, yeah. if he's gonna really he'd have to, you know, pump up a little bit and get in better right. shape if he's going to play me because round is a shape and he doesn't happen to be round. So. I think the humor is the humor is on point though. The humor's on point. Yeah, 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 yeah. Yeah, yeah. Yes. Huge Deadpool fan. Yes. Huge Deadpool yeah. fan. So, yeah. so I can definitely So can you imagine, you know, we would be on YouTube or showing what we look like. If we were Isabella and Pierce and Ryan Reynolds. See, yeah. for me, they, they'd have to be one of those biopics where they have to put like a little title underneath saying who they're playing so that you know. So you're like, who's he supposed to be? Like, oh, <laughs> that guy. All right. Now I get it. Now I can associate the name and the face because it's not like, oh, he looks just like him. No, it doesn't at all. Stop. Stop. Time out. Time out. <laughs> 
<laughs> okay, never mind. We got to get it together. Now that we've covered who would play us in a motion picture, just as Temple had Claire Danes play her, we're going to transition to the other part of Temple's work uh, beyond the great work she's done advocating for autism and talk a little more about her great work advocating for animal handling. We assign human characteristics or anthropomorphize animals frequently, and that makes it even that much more complex because oftentimes natural behavior of animals is not that pleasant. Right. I mean, a good example of that is, you know, a lot of a lot of chickens are not that comfortable being out in open space. Right. And a lot of people like to talk about, you know, having chickens into an open environment. Now, there's a difference between battery raised and, you know, open, you know, free range. But the, the idea that chickens need to be in the wide open space doesn't make as much sense when you realize that actually they're jungle fowl and they like to hide under canopy. And so... For people who just have a kindergarten perspective of, you know, old McDonald's farm. Charlotte's Web is their experience to a farm, right? Yeah, or Charlotte's Web. You have this idea of chickens walking around like that. So thinking about that is is important. And I think it goes over a lot of consumers' heads because they're just not aware of it. Right. Well, and also when you talk about, about keeping chickens or hens in smaller groups or larger groups, pecking order is a real thing. And they will actually peck their other chickens to death. I mean, they are they're omnivores. They will actually eat their brethren chickens, as well as the, the grain and other things that they're fed. And so it's important as we think about animal welfare to, to find the balance. And no person better to do that than a next guest coming up on our table talk, Temple Grandin. At General Mills, we know it's not just what we make, but how we make it that matters. We take care in selecting the ingredients behind our beloved brands, such as Cheerios, Nature Valley, Old El Paso, Haagen-Dazs, and Annie's. And we go further by working every day to alleviate hunger, slow climate change, and strengthen communities. Today, that's what it means to make food the world loves. Learn more at GeneralMills.com. Kevin and Susan, I am so excited today to be able to introduce Dr. Temple Grandin. She's a designer of livestock handling facilities and a professor of animal science at Colorado State University. She consults with the livestock industry on facility design, livestock handling, and animal welfare. In addition to that, she's one of the most uh, renowned uh, spokespersons and champions for uh, autism and Time Magazine named Temple one of the most 100 most influential people. She's a terrific author as well. Her books, Animals in Translation and Animals Make Us Human, were both on the New York Times bestseller list. Her latest book, Calling All Minds, was a New York Times bestseller for middle school students. Her life story has also been made into an HBO movie titled Temple Grandin, starring Claire Danes which won seven Emmy Awards and a Golden Globe. Temple, thank you for spending some time with us today. It's great to be here today. Well, we've had the opportunity to work together over the last 20 or so years. What would you say, what, what triggered your fascination or interest in, in your passion, really, around animal welfare? Well, it all started at my aunt's ranch. This brings up a really important thing. Students get interested in things they get exposed to. It is that simple. I originally was a psychology major, and I got exposed to cattle at my aunt's ranch. I got fascinated with cattle squeeze shoots. I um, switched over to animal science. Hmm. And, and the very first work I did in Arizona was I went around all the feed yards and worked cattle. Well, I'm glad this worked better for you. I'm yeah, glad this worked better. It definitely, better. definitely does. I think it's good that I started out in Arizona. Cattle handling was atrocious, but I saw that as a solvable problem. Mm -hmm. I designed some good cattle handling facilities. And I've often thought, I call these my cattle formative years. So not everybody is a, is a fan of, of all of your recommendations, and yet you've persevered 
despite that. What do you think has been the key to your ability to actually change an entire industry? I've been in 50 years, and I can tell you, yes, I got pushed back from the industry. Mm -hmm. But there were some radical animal rights things that did much worse things to me. They took some of my nicest equipment pictures and posted them online interspersed with Nazi prison camps. Mm. That is really nasty. Yep. It was much worse than what the industry did. And and so they think I'm the evil slaughterhouse designer. So that has forced me to really look at a lot of things. I is everything I gonna be done obsolete in 20 years, 50 years? I mean, that's crossed my mind. And this is where we need to go across disciplines. We had an old agronomist come to our department. And what I learned from this old agronomist is that grazing animals created our best farmland in Iowa and Illinois. And that the grazing animals are part of the land. I have a massive pile of stuff of journal articles that I've been collecting on grazing, rotational grazing, interspersing cattle and with crops, and how these methods can be used to improve land. The animals are part of a lion. So why is the cattle person get interested in all this agronomy stuff? Because I'm, I'm trying to look into the future. And, we, and I'm, it's good that there's innovative people out there doing this regenerative agriculture. In fact, there was a big article this weekend's Wall Street Journal where it's kind of turned into buzzword. Mm -hmm. yeah. yeah. How do you think of regenerative agriculture? How do you define it in your mind um, when you talk about uh, the, the crops and the cattle? Well, soil health. Also, um, the prices of fertilizers skyrocketed. And if you use those cattle every third years, you can drastically reduce, or other grazing animals, the fertilizer and the chemicals. You see, I think in the future, it's going to be a hybrid approach. You take a lot of organic ideas, combine it with regular, you don't ban the chemicals, but you drastically reduce their use. Because just going purely organic is too hard. And I'm actually finding papers that support this, um, where we get the, the grazers and the crops together, and we greatly reduce the chemicals. We don't ban them, but but you use a lot less of it. What would you say are the are the biggest improvements you've seen in animal handling in the in the meat sector over the last twenty years? Oh, cattle handling and pig handling that has definitely improved. I've been in this industry now for 50 years, and back in the 70s, cattle handling was horrible. And I, one of the mistakes I made when I first started is I thought I could, if I could design the right system, that would solve all the cattle handling problems. No. You have to have the management to go along with the equipment. That's a common mistake engineers make, that they can replace management with equipment. That does not work. And I got all of my facilities out there, the big packing plants, center track restrainers, corral systems, you know, major, major stuff out in the industry. This would have been late 80s, early 90s, and there was um, a lot of you know, broken equipment. People weren't managing stuff. And then in 1999, the McDonald's audit started, and I saw more change than I'd seen in my whole entire career. And one of the biggest changes that people had to make is fix broken stuff, put in non-slip mm -hmm. flooring, do some simple changes with lighting, move smaller groups of cattle and pigs, and manage their facilities. So if you could wave a wand and say, you know, here are the here are the top things that you could change unilaterally in animal handling and agriculture today, what what would make your top list? Well, the animal handling used to be absolutely my top thing. But this uh, and I also want to emphasize on animal handling, it takes constant vigilance. 
You can't, there's been some backsliding during COVID. You constantly have to stay on top of cattle handling other, or pay handling for that matter, because then it starts to get rough again. You know, then there's some of these very large cattle, large pigs. There's been some genetic issues with leg conformation and uh, making lameness. Now, what we got to do is start looking at optimal, not maximum, but optimal. Okay, we breed the dairy cow for more and more milk, and then she doesn't breed. There is a point where you have to back off. I'm not suggesting going back to old-fashioned animals. We have to look at what's optimal. Temple, I... um. Admittedly, I work with clients who are marketing and products like I don't have the exposure um, like you and, and Charlie working together and really understanding cattle and animal, you know, at the farm level. For the average American, the uh, American who isn't exposed to farming, um, how do we get through to them your point? Um, about the fact that animals, all animals have value, but different animals should be treated differently based on their ability to feel fear and pain. Well, I've done a lot of work on that. I've written about that in my book, uh, Improving Animal Welfare, a practical approach. Yes. I've written about that. Animals definitely feel emotion. I also wrote about that in in my uh, Animals Make Us Human book. Yep. Um, Animals have emotions. That's science. But what I love about your observations and your recommendations is that you meet the animals where they are and you distinguish between the needs of different animals. You know, dogs have different uh, fear and pain emotions versus that that oyster. A, a dog, you see, now the one thing I tell veterinarians, if you're going to do some painful invasive treatment, prolong a dog's life. Dogs don't know why you do it. Now, I'm not saying that you shouldn't do any procedures. I'm not saying that. But let's say you're doing some treatment that's long and painful. A human being knows that, um, well, let's say it's a very serious leg injury, let's say, um, that that leg will get better and they'll walk again. And the dog's having multiple surgeries. It doesn't know why you're doing it. And there's no way you can tell the dog why you're doing it. I just had a question. What are your thoughts on alternative protein? I thought deeply about that, too. Yeah, tell me a little bit. What, what are your thoughts? Uh, first of all, let's go with the vegetarian burgers. Okay, just the other day I was in the store looking at the ingredient list. And you've got more ingredients. Okay, if it's beef, you have one ingredient, it's beef. Uh, but if it's a veggie burger, each one of those grains, pea protein, other things that you put into that, has a supply chain that has diesel-powered vehicles, and all of the supply chain issues. I question whether, from a sustainability standpoint, it's as good as they claim it is. I really question that. Somebody needs to really look at the supply chain for every ingredient. Okay, that's for the veggie burger. But let's look at the you know um, growing stem cells, muscle cells, and fats. First of all, it will be a GMO. Because right now they're growing them on fetal blood, which has some very serious welfare issues. And to get rid of the fetal blood or cattle, even just regular cattle blood, you're going to have to um, grow the blood proteins on, a, on something like a yeast, on a bacteria. And that's a genetically modified organism. It will be a GMO. Also, while we're on the GMO subject, most people don't know what the first GMO is. And I can tell you, it's not Roundup Ready anything. It is insulin. 
Most people don't know that. And I remember back in the 70s, I'd go over to the Swift plant, and they were collecting pancreas glands from cattle, and you and, and um, one pancreas gland would give 10 days of insulin to a diabetic, and a pig would give five days of insulin. And I got to thinking, to get rid of the pig and the cow to give the pancreas, we're going to have to go to an artificial life. I thought about that. Interesting. So, Temple, let's, let's shift gears a little bit from, from kind of animal ag to some of your advocacy work for, for autism. Uh, you've written extensively about it. You've clearly been an advocate. Talk a little bit about um, the work that you've done and, and the impact that you think you're having as it relates to the, the, the society better understanding how, how we can engage and the fact that the world does need all minds. Okay, first of all, I'm an extreme visual thinker. See, there's two parts of engineering. There's the visual thinking side. I call it the clever engineering department. And then there's the greed mathematical engineering. And what we're losing is the visual thinking on you know, engineers that can't do the algebra. I can't do algebra. And when I was out working mainly in beef processing, I worked with a lot of very skilled uh, machinery design companies. Guy had barely graduated from high school, um, had 20 patents. I worked with talented people labeled draftsmen that were laying out entire factories. And this goes back to taking out uh, the skilled trades out of the schools. Worst thing we ever did, taking out the hands-on classes. Because we need the visual thinkers that can do these mm -hmm. things. And I'm going to guess that when I was out working on these big construction projects, that about 20% of the people I worked with were either autistic, dyslexic, or ADHD. And, and I worked with three different machinery shops with people that barely graduated from high school. Mm -hmm. Gobs of patents. You mentioned earlier... When Charlie asked you, how did you develop your love of animal science and get into, into that? You said it was exposure. So how do we harness the minds of, of, of these young people who have different minds? First of all, you put the hands-on classes back in the schools because we need to be exposing them by middle school. You look at something like Zoom or your iPhone. The visual thinker can't do math makes the iPhone interface or the web or the Zoom that works. You see, that's, that's the interface. That's the visual side of engineering, whether it's computer stuff or whether it's stuff in a factory. And that's what's being screened out. I've got a new book coming out on visual thinking, the hidden gifts of, of people that uh, mm -hmm. think in pictures, patterns, and abstractions. And you can pre-order it right now on Amazon. Just type in Temple Grand and visual thinking, because I think we've got some very severe problems with skill loss. I mean, you had that struggle through your schooling. Um and, but you were able to, you know, get people to work with you and um, find colleges. Do you feel it's improving? Well, I'll, I'll make sure you what happened. I still I went into college. I'd flunked the math exam. I flunked the SAT. I'll tell you, I was lucky. My mother bashed open the back door of a tiny startup right. college that was only two years old and wasn't even accredited yet. Franklin Pierce College. That's where I went. And. Thank goodness, algebra was not the beginning math class. It was probability, matrices, and statistics. And there's a scene in the movie where I get the editor's card. I was a good writer. I started writing for the Farmer Ranchman magazine, and that helped me. And then the other thing I learned is that the way to sell jobs was to show off the work. I would simply show people mm -hmm. my drawings. In my book, Thinking in Pictures, I've got some of my early drawings. And when people saw my drawings, 
they were going, oh, you did that? So it's advocacy and it's also getting what you can do out there. Sounds like those are key things for parents. If a parent of an autistic uh, child is listening, what would you recommend in terms of what are the most important things to do to advocate for a child that's a, a visual thinker? All right, let's talk about the different kinds of minds. And in my book, The Autistic Brain, I talk about jobs for the different kinds of minds. Um, visual thinkers like me, the ones that cannot do algebra, we're the ones that might have the 20 patents, designing and building all kinds of mechanical equipment, high-end skilled trades, designing factories, doing drafting. See, that's the art side. That's my mind. Then your mathematicians, they're going to do your computer programming. They're going to put the boilers and refrigeration in your food factory. They're going to make sure the roof doesn't collapse, that you got water and power. And then in 2019, I had a wake-up call. I went to four trips before COVID shut everything down. I went, the first trip was to a big pork processing plant. And I'm saying the name of a Dutch company all over everything. Then I go to a poultry plant. This is worse. The equipment came over from 100 shipping containers from Holland. The same year, I opened up my new Economist, and I read about the state-of-the-art electronic chip-making machine. Based on our technology, it's from Holland. That goes back to taking out skilled trades. We are paying gigantic price for that, and we're just shunning these kids into special ed. And the problem you've got with autism is you're going from Elon Musk, who's autistic, to somebody who can't dress themselves, and it's all given the same name. Right. You know, Temple, what I absolutely love about you, whether you think about the welfare of animals, whether you're thinking about the autistic community, it's all about respect and meeting people and animals where they're at and giving them, um, you know, the best. And I'm not saying that, that everybody used to do a skilled trade. Um, I just talked to somebody this morning that works at a tech company, tried welding and hated it. Okay, that's fine. But you see, this gets back to the really important thing of trying different things and then you can find out whether you like or hate something right temple we don't want to take up a whole lot more of your time but i but i mean you've had such an incredible life and you've done so much great work um both in animal welfare as well as advocating for autism what's the one thing that you would say you're most proud of over over the course of your amazing career the thing that probably let's start with the animal welfare side first the thing that probably made the greatest change in the animal welfare was a very simple scoring system that I designed originally for the American Meat Institute before it was NAMI and implementing that with McDonald's and getting the plants fixed with a whole lot of very simple changes. And I used all my design ability to make those older places work without having to totally remodel them. So outside of outside of animal handling and animal welfare, what's the one thing you're you're most proud of over the course of your career? Well, that's hard to say. But right now, I'm kind of, you know, I'll be 75 this summer, where I'll no longer have to take my shoes off at the airport. That's going to be nice. <laughs> I want to see the kids that are like me get out and get into good careers. And I'm seeing too many smart kids just going nowhere now. And we got to think really seriously about, you know, some of the education stuff. So that's my biggest thing that... I'm working on right now, but I'm still doing stuff. Yep. Figure out how to give these kids good jobs in programming or animation, full health benefits, long-term jobs, not gig economy. I want to see the kids like me get out and have a good career. Yep. Yeah, that's good. 
Well, Temple, thank you so much for your time. Really, really appreciate it. You're very welcome. It's just amazing every time we get the opportunity to interact with Temple. Um, just an incredible life experience, such an industry leader. Uh, her ability to connect and, and help the industry understand that, yes, livestock are, are units of production, but they're also sentient beings, and we have to care for both. And then, of course, all her amazing work as an advocate for autism is just um unparalleled. Yeah, it's so fascinating to me, the perspective that she brings from the animal's point of view. You hear all of the concern about animal welfare and then and then you talk to someone like Temple, who's been so amazing in this space. And you realize, number one, Americans don't understand what happens on a farm. And number two, they don't understand what it is that really animals need and what welfare might look like. Yeah. What I appreciate about her is lots of things, but her lateral thinking ability. You can definitely see this idea that she's thinking about the world differently, whether or not that it's in terms of livestock, whether or not that's in terms of 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 how we think about um, the future. How many episodes ago did we have Jason Clay on talking about how where we grow and where we graze, I learned today, is going to be rapidly changing. And we have to be able to deal with that. Like the fact that she's keyed in on that and thinking about that, I think is is really fascinating. Agreed. And as a total non-visual thinker, I couldn't put twiddly sticks together. So I'm always <laughs> amazed by somebody who has that visual mind that can look at this and then figure out, oh, this is how we're going to design. I mean, when I, when I tour manufacturing facilities, I'm just in awe of all of the equipment and all of the design and how somebody thought about putting this together. I mean, uh, how it works is one of my favorite things to watch yeah. because mm-hmm. I just have no clue about how to put anything together. And I don't think that way. Right. You know, what she talked about when she was talking about people at the plant that may not have a, a you know, a advanced degree and how what they're doing. She's so right. I mean, I've I do, too, worry about that, that we are not um, promoting tradesmen because that type of uh, work is so important. People who maybe just don't yeah. fit directly into the standard way in which we, you know, traditionally educate. That is so important just to have that um, for the future. Well, we, we pushed everyone into, into college and four-year degrees, right? Right. And, yeah. and, and so this is a little off topic, but I, you guys may know I'm married to an architect. Right. He's been, you know, working almost 30 years now in the, in the industry. And he's one of the few people that draws in the designing process, believes in hanging something on the wall and doing a critique. You look across what she's talking about in, in development in the ag space. It's a bigger picture of being able to design buildings and homes and factories um, effectively and then having the people to build them because we don't have the trades and then we've lost even in architecture the visual thinkers or the way that we're teaching them what's so important about her is her impact on ag and autism but it's so many so many lessons for all of us all right on today's what the food with our benevolent food scientist, our expert on all things food and beverage and trivia. If you're ever going to play Trivia Pursuit, you definitely want Kevin Ryan on your team if there's going to be any questions about food or beverage, because the rest of you can just go home. Food and beverage, maybe not everything else, but yes. All right, well, let's start with food and beverage. This is an interesting one on beverage, which makes no sense at all. Expiration dates on bottled water. What the food, Kevin? (laughs) Um, Well, it's surprising that yes because i've heard people say this and they were like well how does this happen how can water expire it doesn't the bottle expires really so it's it's expiration date for the package not for really? the water within the package what happens to the package 
Well, they're worried about degradation and the idea that if you keep, have you ever been to a gas station and they keep the bottles of water outside in like 150 degree weather? (laughs) Um, Water should not be held for that long a period of time in that much like heat and things like that. So the idea being is, is that over a great period of time, there may be degradation to the package. And so they're more worried about the package. And oftentimes it's out of an abundance of safety. I mean, you know, all there's been great a number of tests done on packaging and degradation and things like that. So they're just looking forward to see, okay, when might this have an issue? Uh, and then put an expiration date on it. So as a doomsday prepper, I'm okay as long as I keep it in my hermetically sealed basement? Yes. It's all good. So they're just not trying to get us to, you know, move on and buy more water. I don't think so. That's interesting. I didn't know that. Yes, there's definitely something to it. And that that's true of a lot of things. Yeah, but I didn't understand what you just said about water. And I think expiration dates can get a bad rap with the consumer because they think, oh, this is seems good to me. So that's uh, fascinating. So wh- when, when should we pay attention to them? I mean, when do they actually make a difference? And then you've got Best Buy, Use Buy, Sell Buy, which are all confusing. Yeah. So which expiration dates should we actually pay attention to? Well, I mean, they, they are confusing. I think that needs to be something that's uh, talked about in the industry and get a little bit better at because it is confusing to consumers. So it's not doing any anybody any good that way. I think the things to pay attention to is they're more of a guideline so that you do pay attention. When you see that the date is getting close or it's near then you say, well, uh, let me use my senses really to see, does this smell bad? Does, am I seeing any growth on this? And then using common sense to see whether or not I need to get rid of this. That's what I would suggest uh, for most cases. Um, of course, there's going to be some times where that may not be the case, but I would say in most times, use them as a guideline. Three Squares Dishing on the Food Industry is created and hosted by Charlie Arnott, Susan Schwally, and Kevin Ryan. Thanks to Temple Grandin for joining us on our table discussion this week. Thanks to our producers, Dave Beesing and Jason Jackson at Sound That Brands. And most of all, thanks to you for listening. Before we go, a quick thanks again to General Mills for their support of this podcast. And if you like where this discussion is going and want to support the show, drop us a line. That's three squares mail at gmail.com. The number three squares mail at gmail.com. Food is our passion, and we're glad it's yours, too. We'll set the table again soon on Three Squares. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic-butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello? Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com.